Hello and welcome to the Monarchium Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. And on this week's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Sean Eagle. To give you a little bit of background on Sean, Sean joined the faculty of the Department of Neurological Surgery at the University of Pittsburgh in January 2022 as a research assistant professor. Sean's also collaborated on the Department of Defense-funded research for the University of Pittsburgh since 2013. He began focusing on TBI in 2015 when he began his doctoral studies at the University of Pittsburgh's Neuromuscular Research Laboratory. Sean then extended his studies as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pittsburgh's Medical Center and Sports Medicine Concussion Clinic from 2019 to 2021. His research interests are currently focused on mitigating risk for long-term sequelae following traumatic brain injury with a specific focus on mental health issues. Sean, thank you very much for your time, mate. Looking forward to getting into this. Thanks for having me. No problem. John. So obviously, Sean, you know, uh, I've been following a lot of your your um, your research outputs and that on uh, through LinkedIn initially came and across you and then onto ResearchGate. Um, but for anyone who hasn't come across you, Sean, you know, I give a bit of a brief background there at the start, but you just tell us about, you know, where your career started out and what brought you to where you're currently at. Yeah, I had an interesting start to my career. I was hired to be a a research assistant, just collecting research data for a, a series of Department of Defense grants that were that, that were given to the University of Pittsburgh um, in a kind of reconceptual, reconceptualization of um, the tactical athlete, so to speak, um, and giving sports medicine principles and applying them to uh, United States military. Um, so I accepted a job to move to Coronado, California and work with uh, SEAL qualification uh, training students, people who were trying to become Navy SEALs mm -hmm. um, and looking at might predict injury risk um, and other aspects of human performance that, that we might be interested in related to musculoskeletal injuries. Uh, and I stayed there for about a year and then moved east uh, to North Carolina to work with the Marine Special Operations Command, exact same initiatives, just a different population. Uh, and from there, I transferred back to the university to uh, join the lab that had received that funding and um, begin my own work. Uh, specifically, uh, I was interested in TBI and motor control uh, deficits after after TBI. That's cool. And I mean, for you, Sean, because I know from our previous conversations, your, your backgrounds within athletic therapy. So what, what drew you into the, the research context of it as well, and primarily from the tactical space? Yeah, so it was just serendipity, really. Yeah. Uh, I was master's in athletic training. We had a research project, and I enjoyed, um, I enjoyed the aspects of research more, writing up our findings more than my classmates did. And I, I practiced clinically briefly um, and kind of realized that it wasn't going to be for me long term. Yeah. Um, and which I saw this job posting. It looked incredible. I was really interested in, in working for the university and moving to San Diego and, and working with SEAL students um, and doing research and injury prevention. That all sounded pretty cool to me. And I've just kept pulling bread until I ended up here. It, it's really, you know, a, a series of accidents. <laughs> Well, it, it, it's, a, it's a cool career path, dude. And like you say, it's just uh, having that awareness early on and being like, you know, where your folks wants to go. Some people will just try and just stay hardball into, well, I've, I've studied for an athletic therapy degree. I need to be in the applied setting. Like you say, 
the research side spoke to you more. And that was just where you decided to go, which is cool to hear, dude. So obviously after therapy, quite a big, broad area, and even in the research area is quite broad as well. So what was it specifically around TBI and more control that really sparked your interest? Uh, I think being on the ground and working on the bases with these everyone, especially in the special ops population, had a TBI history. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my one of my jobs as the athletic trainer on staff was to obtain of medical history uh, from each of these guys, and everyone had med history um, related to TBI. Everyone had mental health related issues, um, not necessarily diagnosed, but they talked a lot about it. Um, you know, in fact, often it was not diagnosed. It was just something that they just uh, lived with. Um, and that interaction between uh, mental health, PTSD, and concussion um, just drew my interest in a way that, you know, I knew we were just scratching the surface of what we knew about concussion. And in many ways, we still are. Yeah. Um, just it interested me to kind of be on the forefront of this revolution of understanding traumatic brain injury and how we can help people with this. That's cool. And that's uh, it's something I'm looking forward to diving into in more depth here, Sean, as well, if you regards to your research. Just at the start, though, if, we, if you don't mind, we can just pull it straight back to basics for some people who might be listening here. So we hear a lot about traumatic brain injury and we hear a lot about concussion, especially within the sporting realm and now into um, the military and the tactical field as well. What were the major differences for anyone who's listening here between concussion and true TBI as well? Uh, Depending on your definition, there are no differences. Uh, Concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury, which is a term I hate. Um, Mm -hmm. there There are people that suffer concussions that have decades-long consequences related to mental health and uh, can ruin your quality of life in some instances. And I don't see what's mild about that. Yeah. Um, whereas it's really just, you know, we kind of like to think of it as a, as a traumatic brain injury spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and somewhere in the middle the, with the hardest uh, group to study is the blast-related injuries. It's hard to tell where they fall on the continuum of traumatic brain injury. Um, but in general, I, w- I would rather us refer to brain injuries as brain injuries across the board and, and not uh, use severities. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting one because I've, I've heard the term, you know, mild traumatic, uh, traumatic brain injury before and it always seemed a little bit oxymoronic to me to say that, like, oh, it's mild, but it's traumatic brain injury. It's like you say, it is that spectrum within that as well. Um, you, you mentioned an interesting point there about classifying on that spectrum for blast injuries as well. So what is it about, particularly about blast injuries, that makes it so difficult to quantify them on that scale? Uh, they happen, and the fact that we can't recreate them in uh, human subjects um, mm. due to issues. Yeah. Um, whereas sport-related concussions, over three million happen in the U.S. alone every year. Um, you know, those 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 are so common um, that most people who have participated in athletics have had at least one in their past. Um, so it's easier to study the effects of that in the short term, um, whereas blast-related injuries can happen most often in the field or in training, um, and it can be difficult to study the effects of those uh, quickly. Um, and, you know, it, it, like I said, it's very hard to recreate a blast in humans. Um, yeah. So it's been a focus of research in animal models, but it's just difficult to quantify because of how they occur. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. And I mean, in terms of traumatic brain injury, you know, how, how would you say we could characterize traumatic brain injury in terms of its presentation? And I know there's a lot of research, especially on the concussion side of things, going into susceptibility as well of uh, concussion and trying to predict concussion models as well. So from your own research, what have you found around that? Yeah, uh, the, you know, the major revolution in concussion knowledge over the last 10 years has been the conceptualization of different subtypes or clinical profiles of concussion, right? So the sense that not, not one concussion is the same between people and you bring uh, to the table different aspects of your, of your brain and your personality um, and your experiences and you injure that brain and that brain is wholly unique. Right. Yeah. So um, there have been different models that have been proposed. Uh, the group that I did my uh, postdoctorate work with, the UPMC Concussion Center, have been real leaders in this area. Um, Dr. Mickey Collins and Dr. Anthony Contos on the research side have really uh, put out this profile model that has gained a lot of traction uh, in the sense that there are five primary profiles people come in with fibular, mm -hmm. um, ocular, migraine anxiety, mood, and cognitive. Okay. And they use those profiles and targeted treatments for that person's issues. Um, what, what you're bringing to think about you, um, and we can directly impact those. And that is dramatically different from 10, 15, 20 years ago, where the predominant is just to stick people in a dark room and let them rest for three to seven um, and completely withdraw from life and, and the things that the things that they were used to doing before the injury. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I mean, what, what, what's that, uh, that, that process like there, Sean, then? So what is the assessment process with someone who's suffered a TBI and trying to assign them into those one of those five different profiles? That's a really good question. So it, it's a concussion specialty clinic, which is really pretty unique. Um, across the U.S. and even internationally. But in general, uh, the clinical neuropsychologist at that group is, is leading the, uh, the team effort there. Um, so somebody will come in, they'll take a symptom survey, uh, they'll complete a medical history because we know certain uh, medical history risk factors can predict your outcomes after a concussion. So you'll fill out different uh, issues you might have had before you had a concussion, like motion sickness history, migraine history, things like that, uh, anxiety, depression. Um, and then they'll fill out a, they'll complete a, neuro, a computerized neurocognitive test, um, kind of the classic concussion assessment test. Uh, and then in the room, they'll talk with the clinical neuropsychologist, they'll complete a vestibular ocular motor screening of OMS uh, to look at um, how their inner ear and how their eyes are functioning. Um, and based off of those things, they will assign these profiles to that start them down a pathway uh, to try to get them better in a more active fashion than we used to that's interesting here and i mean what what does uh, I, I know with five different potential profiles that's going to look very different for each individual there but what what's some of those early stages there because i know you you highlighted earlier sean about the original model of just you know pulling people back from life and just having them sit uh, quietly for days on end, you know, trying to get back to some sort of function there as well. And I know some of the research has been coming out about early stage aerobic exercise into that just to help with regards to 
again back into some sort of function. So what what does that look like? So say for someone who's more either ocular or cognitively uh, impacted by their TBI. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's a that's a complicated question, but essentially, um, you know, someone comes in. Let's say they're showing uh, they're showing things that look like they are a vestibular response to the injury. So, mm-hmm. primarily uh, having in issues with uh, balance, with um, dizziness, and it's, you know, ways are impacting um, the way that they handle their schoolwork, for example, or they're avoiding going to the grocery store. That person will be a vestibular profile and they'll be transferred down to a vestibular therapist to to be um, engage and recover with those systems to get them back to a normal function. And then in terms of um, more of a, say, cognitive uh, impairment there, what, what would that pathway look like for someone on that one, Sean? Yeah, cognitive impairment is um, pretty rare in terms of what we see in our clinic. Okay. Um, so, you know, it, it is definitely the most rare of the five. Um, you know, occasionally if it gets really far down the line, they might do some cognitive therapy. Um, but not really. Most cognitive issues resolve within the first five to seven days after mm-hmm. a concussion. Um, so that's the most rare and, and probably the hardest to articulate. I know you've done some work around, um, you know, the, the ocular impairment following concussion. So what, what's the biggest things we're typically seeing with regards to ocular impairment and just that ability for, you know, uh, individuals just to either track or pick up certain stimuli as well? Yeah, so that's a really good point. The VOMS is another assessment that's come out of the UPMC concussion clinic that has had a big impact. Um, and, you know, the first half of that assessment is ocular ocular motor assessments. So they look mm-hmm. at pursuits, they look at horizontal and vertical saccades, um, and they look at near point of convergence. And that last one is probably the most relevant um, to finding a uh, ocular profile. Uh, we just put out a recent paper in in the Journal of uh, Neurosurgery Pediatrics looking at predictors of different profiles. Um, and near point of convergence greater than five centimeters was, uh, was the strongest predictor of an ocular profile. And um, that is very easy to do clinically. It's just looking at your ability to have your eyes converge um, center on an approaching object. Okay. Um, you know, there are some more advanced techniques that are gaining some traction. Uh, we've partnered with the Department of Ophthalmology, uh, fixational eye movements um, with, you know, high-grade retinal. Uh, those things aren't ready for prime time in terms of rolling out into the clinic um, because they're, they're very high-tech, they're very expensive devices, mm-hmm. um, but really exciting in terms of finding ways to identify and track the injury long-term. Okay, okay. And what, what, what sort of markers? So in terms of long-term, you're saying greater than five centimeters was, if I heard you correct there, then we're, that's a stronger predictor. Yes, of, of having an ocular profile. So I'm guessing then in terms of that, that rehab pathway here, you're just looking gradually over time for that ocular uh, range just to be drawn back and back closer to that five centimeter point, is it? Yeah, less than that five centimeter point is is better. So lesser is better with near point of convergence. Farther uh, farther away, uh, a greater distance is indicative of a poor performance of that visual system. 
And in terms of, because I know um, a lot of the, the research I've seen around concussion impact now, especially around ACL injury, is just um, that, that increased risk of ACL injury following concussion up to two, three years markers post. Uh, what, what's the, the big impact we're seeing there from a neuromuscular standpoint following a TBI as well? And I know it's a, it's a broad question, Sean, but, um, you know, how, how is this impacting or like therapists or trainers, you know, going forward with regards to how they approach that rehab process? Yeah, so that's a really good question. That was what my doctorate work was in. Mm -hmm. um, those studies started emerging around 2015, and that's really what drew my interest in motor control after a concussion. Um, and, and that's what I focused on. And I adopted um, a philosophy related to motor control uh, with one of my mentors from the Neuromuscular Research Lab, his name is Dr. Chris Conaboy. Um, and that, that theory of motor control is, is based solely on perception, actually direct perception. And the main is that you control the way you move through your environment by directly perceiving opportunities for action as you move throughout your environment. And uh -huh. it, uh, that hypothesis is really, um, was really quite a uh, turn away from the classic paradigm of a top-down control where you're, you're integrating memory uh, with what you're seeing and then making a decision in real time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, those, that's slightly different. That's not slightly different, actually. That's, that's completely direct perception in that you are, you have an understanding of your own individual abilities. Um, you're seeing things that you may not be able to interact with in the environment. And that is happening in real time, um, those, those sorts of decisions. And we, we conducted some uh, preliminary research and put out a review on the topic in the journal Sports Medicine. Um, and we essentially proposed that that direct perception ability within a person becomes altered after having a concussion. Mm -hmm. And that can lead to re-injury risk with different areas of the body like the ACL if not properly attuned after, um, after the injury. Okay. So what, what sort of things are you recommending off the back of that research then uh, in, terms of, in terms of going into practice there, Sean, with regards to people, you know, trying to appropriately rehab people who may have this deficit? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. We haven't gotten that far down the line, um, but I would suggest uh, doing things in, at real game speed um, and having a longer practice period at, at full speed. You know, I, I played football, so using the example, if you're coming back from a concussion, um, don't just practice in uh, helmets and shoulder pads and then go back into the game uh, after you've recovered. You know, I would suggest a longer recovery period perhaps even an additional week in which they're practicing at full speed in order to reca recalibrate and reattune those perceptual motor systems back mm -hmm. to they were accustomed to before the concussion. Okay. Okay. That's good insight there as well. And in terms of, I know your, your research has touched a lot on mental health and long-term health within terms of concussion TBI there as well, Sean. So I'd really love to dive into that a little bit because I know 
when we chatted previously, we, we spoke a little bit about some of the, the key biomarkers you guys would look for in terms of TBI patients and the long-term rehab uh, outcomes as well. So just as a basic model for anyone listening, can you just talk to us a little bit about that? Like what were the key biomarkers you are looking at and what do they represent for that individual on their, you know, their long-term health pathway? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, the word biomarker is, is typically associated with blood. Um, but, you know, there are, anything is really a biomarker if you, if you boil it down. Anything you measure, some performance aspect of a person's body mm -hmm. is a biomarker. So there are biomarkers that might be related to musculoskeletal injury. There's biomarkers, you know, you know fixated uh, eye movements from retinal scanning could be a biomarker. Um, so that is, a, that is a really broad area that we're right in the infancy of. In terms of blood biomarkers, um, the things I'm most interested in right now are what's called predictive biomarkers. And they're different from a lot of the stuff that, that you see in the literature now. You, you obtain a blood sample and you use that blood value to predict how a person will respond to a certain therapy or a certain intervention. Mm -hmm. And that's a really interesting concept in this new age of concussion where people get assigned specific profiles or subtypes and then they go down a therapeutic pathway. It could be really interesting to know from a quick blood test what type of per person might respond to therapy, for example, and what person may not and might have to go down a different treatment pathway. Uh -huh. um, the potential savings for um, for hospitals and for insurance groups and, and time savings for the patient and for the doctors and for, um, you know, the athletics teams, for example, and in the athlete population. So that's something I'm most interested in at the moment. That's interesting. That's interesting. And like you said, it's still in infancy at the moment, Sean, but what sort of uh, markers have you seen from blood sampling then that, have, you know, helped so sort of predict so sort of pathways, if you will? Yeah, so uh, this is very preliminary, but uh, I, when I first started at this new position, I did an analysis on a group of uh, chronic EBI patients. And just what that means is people who've been dealing with issues related from their TBI for greater than six months. Um, these people were military personnel and they did blood sampling before engaging in a six month targeted intervention for their specific issues. Okay. Um, and from that study, this is stuff that we're presenting this summer at the National Neurotrauma Society and International Neurotrauma Society meetings. Um, the National Neurotrauma Society is actually next week, but looking at uh, the degree of change in the post-concussion symptom scale and degree and change in the brief symptom inventory 18, which is predominantly associated with mood uh, issues. Mm -hmm. um, and both we found that uh, HL1, which was a preliminary candidate to be a diagnostic biomarker, which has fallen out of favor um, for lack of specificity amongst, amongst other things, um, was actually associated with a greater capacity to um, following intervention, whereas uh, phosphorylated tau was associated with a, a decreased capacity to respond to therapy. Oh, okay. um, so these are very preliminary findings. Um, they haven't been released yet in terms of a paper, but um, they will be soon. And, and we're hoping to continue that in the future. 
indigenous population. No, that's interesting. I mean, that'll be a really interesting one to look into further and just see, as you say, Sean, like how does it direct the patient down the pathway and how does it also help with organizations save time and money investing in that pathway as well, which would be huge. I think that's really cool to see. Um, I know we talked a little bit at the start saying about the impact of TBI on individuals' mental health and long-term health there as well. So I know this is an area you're very, very uh, research active in. So in terms of mental health, what are some of the key things we're starting to see now with people who are suffering from TBI and to pre, pre, uh, pre to that, it's like, at what point is there a qualification for TBI? Like how many TBIs is too many TBIs to start developing that sort of mental health model? You know, is it, is it a case of, you know, you're one and you're straight on that pathway or is it someone who's had multiple TBIs is just, you know, suddenly increased on that susceptibility chart? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and when I figure out the answer to that, I'll <laughs> really let you know. Um, but the, the answer to that is a number. Um, mm -hmm. Who says there's a number that's not accurate because, like I said in the beginning, everyone bring to the table their own unique experience, personality, and their own physiology. Yeah. Um, those things all interact in a way that you, how you will respond after. Um, and, you know, in, in the United States, especially right now, we're dealing with mood, a mood crisis mm -hmm. um, acted dramatically by 19 and the pandemic. Um, but, you know, many, many patients that are seen in our clinic come in with a pre, uh, a pre-injury diagnosis of anxiety or depression. Okay. And that is a very robust predictor of having an anxiety or depression response to concussion, if okay. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so that is that is something that goes down its own pathway. Uh, that clinic is lucky to have an in-house psychiatrist that that specializes in concussion, brain injury-related mood issues. Um, but you know, it's very very common to have a mood-related response to a concussion. Mm -hmm. um, and that is one of the major reasons why we propose that more activity early on um, will, will help in recovery. It, it's pretty well known that the earlier you, or the more physically active you are, the more you'll stave off mood issues. Um, that's true in, in the general population, not the not population. And that's something that we want to try to emphasize um, after having a concussion, you're at a higher risk for anxiety and depression-related symptoms. Physically mm -hmm. active early could mitigate those symptoms and preclude you from a full-blown anxiety or depression disorder. That's interesting. That's interesting. And you say about getting back to some form of activity as early as you can there. So what, what, when you say early, what, what do you mean by that, Sean, in terms of time scale from someone from initial point of concussion? That's a great question. So uh, many strength and conditioning coaches will be familiar or, you know, athletic therapists, athletic trainers will be familiar with the graded return to play program, um, which has been put out by the, uh, the concussion and sport group predominantly as the international consensus criteria. There's a really interesting study out of Canada uh, recently that, that 
did a very large uh, randomized controlled trial of people with concussion with over 400 participants. And they found that um, people who initiated the return to play protocol in terms of just initiating activity at 72 hours um, and also adhered to that protocol did much better in terms of recovery time and symptomology than the group that waited until they were asymptomatic before initiating the return to activity protocol. Okay, that's interesting to see. And I mean, in terms of graded activity there, we're talking just, I know from some of the stuff I've read uh, out there, just like even light aerobic exercise there on something like a bike or something, isn't it? Yeah, straight ahead aerobic exercise, like on a stationary bike, walking or uh, jogging on a treadmill, if tolerated, um, for around 30 minutes is, is a good baseline to start. Um, uh-huh. Symptom provocation is okay. You don't want to stop the second symptoms. Um, the symptoms are observed. Uh, but that, you know, that opinion is, is more the opinion of our clinicians and not necessarily the opinion of of the international consensus group. Okay. No, I mean, it, it's it's interesting here and just seeing how that's helping so far. The, the research has gone into TBI with regards to not only helping to steer best practice in returning individuals back to physical activity, whether it be within sport or within the, the, the defense and tactical environment, but also that long-term health and that mental health pathway as well is huge. So in terms of your own research, Sean, because I know you're very active within the field, where's your research going next with regards to this? Yeah, so uh, in, in regards to mental health or just in general? But let's go both. both in general. Um, so uh, in me- mental health in general, I've, I've been interested in um, finding, kind of identifying points where in recovery where a mental health symptom becomes a mental health disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to do daily, uh, daily text messages, daily assessments of, of kids symptoms after having a concussion and, and finding an influx point where, where perhaps we need to be concerned to evaluate this person further. Okay. And that is something I've been interested in while in TBI in general, I'm really intrigued by the concept of predictive biomarkers and what that could mean for for um, all these military and athlete systems at large in general. Um, I, I, would, I would like to pursue that further as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of um, saying for the mental health side of things, monitoring something going from being a symptom to a disorder, what is it exactly you're looking for at that point in time just to see when that switch occurs? Yeah, we don't know exactly what we're looking for um, at, at that point. But in general, I, what I'm interested in is tracking the trajectory of these mood symptoms over time. Okay. Uh, you know, more specifically, which ones which ones have a have a small which ones stay elevated and which ones drop off and at what days do they drop off? Mm-hmm. Um, characteristics in which you can predict the drop off, the time to those returning or the the those slopes staying elevated um that's really more of what i'm interested in nice nice sean and i mean in terms of um sorry just off point here dude but in terms of that research paper you're coming out on the first of july 
if you want to have it just a chat about that where the, the main function is around it and what you've discovered please feel free to show yeah so we have a paper coming out in jamma network open on july 1st uh interaction between a person's race ethnicity uh their their biological sex being either male or female concussion history within the last year depression history within the last year and a history of suicide attempts so this is the extreme example of mental health mm -hmm. this is a, a very large sample of over twenty-eight thousand kids in the united states this is a publicly available uh, risk behavior survey that's at high schools every two years in a representative demographic across the country um, and we found a very interesting, uh, unique interaction between certain race, ethnicities, uh, female sex, having a concussion and having depression in the last year. Those okay. things can interact, increase your risk of suicide, um, suicide attempt rather in adolescence in the U.S. Okay. Um, so we're really, um, we're really, uh, interested in looking at how does someone's race ethnicity uh, influence their experience um, after having a concussion. Those things may be related to a proxy of a whole bunch of other different uh, demographic variables. But race ethnicity in TBI is just kind of starting to gain momentum and how that can interact and impact outcomes rather. Um, so this is something that we're excited to look a little bit more into to to get a better understanding of how to help people when they come into the clinic. That's interesting. I mean, in terms of that paper there, Sean, um, what are the significant factors you're seeing there in terms of, you know, uh, biological gender and uh, race? Not what were the, the, the strong or most significant uh, outcomes you're finding from that to be as a predictor model? So we use the decision tree model to identify different clinical phenotypes of people that might be associated with a higher risk of a suicide attempt in the previous year, uh, we found that one or more concussions was associated with a 31% increase risk for suicide attempts. It was actually the strongest predictor um, using decision tree modeling. Um, within that, had a concussion, if you were Black or African-American, Hispanic, Latino, or multiracial, that increased your risk to 59% of having a suicide. Um, and in that group of, of Black, Hispanic, Latino, or multiracial kids, if you were female, it increased your risk further by 34% compared to male. Jeez, okay. um, so highest, the highest uh, risk group uh, in this study were female, Black, Hispanic, Latino, or multiracial kids with one concussion or more in the lab to having a suicide uh, attempt. Wow. And what, what's the, uh, the age range of those demographics you're looking at there, Sean? Yeah, it's 10 to 18 years old. Yeah. So it's given across high schools and, and uh, middle schools in the, in the United States. Wow. Okay. Have you seen any, any significant difference between high school and middle school there? Or is it just uh, more so from that spectrum of having suffered a concussion within the previous year and ethnicity and gender? Yeah, that's a really good point. We didn't look at school age. We did look generally at age. Um, there was a, it was a significant barrier um, for in a univariate analysis. It did not contribute to this decision tree modeling that I just that I just described. Okay, cool. 
no problem Sean so what I'll do I mean that sounds like a really interesting study and I'll link it into our show notes here as well so anyone who's listening can just link into that as well mate so that'll be really cool um Sean you know I'm always interested in everyone I've got on the show um just with regards to their own development and their own education in terms of you know a book an app or website you've personally found useful can you just give us uh one of those just what's helped you with your own education your own development yeah, this was a really cool question, and I thought a lot about it, and I landed on a, a book that I read when I was a doctoral student that um, was pretty profound, especially considering its age. It was written by Santiago Ramon Paul, who was the famous neuroscientist, neuropathologist, um, who came up with the idea that neurons are discrete cells that interact with each other. It ended up becoming the neuron doctrine and really a foundation of modern cell theory and modern neuroscience. Uh, And he wrote a book called Advice for a Young Investigator. Uh, It's a very short, uh, thin book. Um, I would encourage, especially people interested in the neurosciences would find it very interesting, but anyone interested in human science who wants to become a more impactful uh, scientist uh, should give it a read. It's amazing how prescient he is in this, in this book considering um, it was written you know a hundred years ago well that's a solid uh, one dude i'll make sure i pop the link into that into our show notes as well dude sean it's been an absolute privilege again to sit down and chat to you i know you're a busy guy so thank you very much for being so gracious with your time if anyone's listening to this episode who you know may want to get in touch with regards to your research or potential collaboration that what's the best way they can do that uh, the best way is email. Um, my email is eagle, E-A-G-L-E-S-R-2 at upmc.edu. I'd be happy to talk to anyone interested in, in talking further. I am also on Twitter um, at Sean underscore Eagle. Um, and, you know, just try to share uh, research as it, as it comes out uh, related to these areas. And please, uh, anyone interested in please reach out. Perfect. That's fine, Sean. I'll make sure, I, once again, along with your, your book recommendations, some of your research, I'll link everything into our show notes just so it's easy and accessible for everyone listening. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate that. No problem, Sean. Once again, you know, thank you very much, mate. It's very much appreciated. Sean, thanks for having me. Okay, guys, so that's another week's episode done and dusted. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I hope it gave you some new information or made you think a little bit more deeper into some of your practice or into different topics. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review. Um, it really means a lot to us, guys, and really helps bump up the podcast within the, the rating scales as well. And once again, please make sure you pass this on to your colleagues, your friends who are in the performance space as well, and just help get this message out. All right, guys, take care. See you next week.